us. I encourage you to get a Bible and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 will be the text for our study. We'll be spending our time in 2 Peter 2 this morning. So I encourage you to get a Bible, put a marker or a finger there. And as we go to other passages, we'll keep coming back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Beginning at verse 4, 2 Peter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot who oppressed, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his soul, righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. What on earth is all of that about? Well, let's back up and get the context and then we'll see what that's about. This book, 2 Peter, only three chapters, is dealing with false teaching about the second coming. He starts in chapter 1 saying that the like precious faith is true. In other words, what you have been taught by the apostles, by the inspired Word of God, is indeed true. Hold to what you know to be true. Don't be moved by fables. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 talks about the false teachers themselves and the danger of false teachers and how they may lead you astray. Chapter 3 deals with the clarity of the second coming and what the Lord would have them to know and believe about the second coming. Now this chapter is about the false teachers themselves. Though that's not going to be our major focal point, that's what this chapter is all about. Now here's the point he has just made. By just made, I mean in the previous verse. We started at verse 4. Here is what verse 3 says. The point is, false teachers face destruction. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. There's the false teaching. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. God is not asleep. God will indeed bring punishment on those who are evildoers. And in this case, he's talking about those who are false teachers. So don't be influenced by those who themselves face destruction. That's his point he has just made. Now in that context, he gives three examples in verses 4 to 9. That's the verses we just read. He talks about the angels that sinned. Now notice what he says at verse 4, back to our text. He says, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, who are they? We'll talk about that in a moment. What's his point? We'll talk about that in a moment. His second example is the ancient world. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and did not spare the ancient world. The third example is found in verse 6, and that is Sodom and Gomorrah. So to illustrate his point that these false teachers are going to be destroyed when they go against God. Evidence of that is citing three examples, angels that sinned, the ancient world in the days of Noah, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let's go to verse 9 in our context. He had just talked about false teachers. 
He just gave those three examples. And then here's what he says in the verse we just read at verse 9. Then he said, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now then is italicized, but that seems to be implied because let's go back now to verse 4. Verse 4 says, for if God did not spare the angels, and if God did not spare the ancient world, and if he did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, then, then what? The Lord knows how to do something. Let's talk about the Lord knows how. There are two things he says the Lord knows how to do. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. And the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust for punishment. So those are the two things that he mentions in this context. The Lord knows how. There is assurance and there is comfort in knowing the Lord knows how. So let's talk about the Lord knows how. You might underline that phrase in your text. It's 2 Peter 2 and in verse Verse 9, then the Lord knows how. There is comfort in knowing the Lord knows how. Now there seems to be a contrast and an implied contrast. Human governments and human courts, because this is a judgment that's dealt with in this context, human government and human courts are imperfect. We all know that. So one is taken to trial at a human court and they are fallible. Even doing the best they can, I'm not talking about where there may be prejudice, and I'm not talking about where there is a sham of a trial, but even trying to have a great trial, having to have a fair trial, sometimes the good person, the innocent person is found guilty and they are punished. Sometimes the guilty person gets off scot-free and it's because of some technicality. So you have, with reference to human government, human courts, they are imperfect. In contrast, our Lord knows how. The Lord knows how. Human governments don't know how. They are not perfect. But the Lord's judgment is perfect. So let's talk about the Lord knows how. There are two things that he says the Lord knows how to do. The Lord knows how to reserve the unjust. Go back to our text at verse 9. He says at verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust. The Lord knows how to do that. So let's see what he says in the context. That's always the best interpretation of what he's talking about. What does he mean the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust? What he does is give us examples of judgment. Three examples, in fact, in the context. Let's see what they are. The first of those is in verse 4. He's just listed that for us at verse 4. And that is, if God did not spare the angels that sinned. Now, who are angels? What are angels all about? Well, we could spend a lesson or two or three, maybe just talking about all the references in the Bible about angels. But who are angels and what are angels? Bedag defines them as messengers. He's a lexicographer. He's not a commentator. And so it's simply a messenger of God. But the Bible tells us that they were spiritual beings that were higher than man. Let's go back to the Psalms. You will, when you turn there, that reference may not ring a bell, but when you turn there, it'll ring a bell for you. For he made him a little lower than the angels. God made man a little lower than the angels. So what do I learn from that? That they are spiritual beings that are higher than man. 
Now they came at times, Genesis 18, in the form of man and appeared as man, but they are spiritual beings that are higher than man. So they're not mankind. They may come in the form of man, like Genesis 18. They are the highest of God's created. That seems to be implied in Hebrews chapter 1. I decide the whole chapter. Christ is better than angels. Why does he mention that? Because in the estimation of the Jew, angels were about the highest you could get other than deity himself. So they were the highest of God's creation. And so they are God's special messengers. Jude 9 talks about Michael the archangel implies that there are rank, there is rank among angels. Now ask me to tell you what that rank involves, how that was determined, and all that's involved in it, and I can't tell you that because there is no revelation concerning that. But there does seem to be implied that there is rank among angels. There was Michael who was the archangel, according to Jude verse 9. But I'm more interested back in our text in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 4, the text says, these angels sinned. Now we are not told the nature of their sin. We're not told whether it was something they said, whether it was something they did, or something they thought. It just says they sinned, the angels sinned. We are not told when of their sin. That is, we're not told when that took place. When did they commit sin? We're not told. We might imply that from another text, but this text says nothing about that. We're not told of the number of those who sinned, how many angels sinned. Was it a vast number? Was it a small number? We're not told. The angels that sinned, the text says. So there's a great deal we don't know about that. Perhaps these are the same people or the same angels that are referred to, or if not very similar to, Jude verse 6. For the angels that did not keep, I'm reading Jude 6, their proper domain left their own habitation. He is reserved in everlasting chains under darkness to the judgment of the great day. Sounds very familiar, sounds very similar to verse 4. So what I'm suggesting, they didn't keep their own domain, they didn't keep their own rank, they, they went out of rank that God had given them. Go back now to Jude verse 6. They did not keep their own proper domain. That is, the domain and the realm that God had given them, they stepped out of rank of that. They violated something that God, some boundary God had set for them. So it very well may be the same ones. Now let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. What about these angels that sinned? Whatever they did, and the greatest insight we have would be Jude 6, that they may not have kept their rank, stepped out of their rank, stepped out of their order. Or it may have been something else. But he says at verse 4, the angels that sinned, what did he do concerning them? He cast them down to hell. Now the word hell is not the word Gehenna, nor even the word Hades, it's the word Tartarus, which is only used one time in the New Testament, and it's found in this verse. So what is Tartarus? It's the realm of the Hadean realm, of the Hadean world, that is where the wicked await judgment. Now go to Luke 16. In Luke chapter 16, upon the death of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16 gives us the greatest insight as to the realm of the departed spirit. They can't go out of the realm of darkness. They cannot pass from one side to the other. None of that can be done, but they're chained or confined as if by chains. Now that describes a miserable, wretched condition they're in. So what kind of punishment did they receive? They've been cast down to Tartarus. They're being held in chains of darkness, 
and reserved unto judgment. They haven't faced judgment yet. Judgment day is yet to come. But notice at verse 4, they're reserved to judgment. They're awaiting judgment. They're held to be punished at the last day. Much like we see in the case of the rich man in Luke chapter 16, he was in torment, but he's awaiting judgment. So they haven't faced judgment day yet. The pronouncement of their guilt, but they are in Tartarus awaiting their judgment. Now what's the point about angels? Why did he even mention angels? He is saying if they were, so will these. He reasoned from the greater to the lesser. Here's his point. That if God didn't even spare angels, why would he spare false teachers and their followers? You see, as Barnes says, neither their former rank, their dignity, nor their holiness saved them from being thrust into hell. And if God punished them so severely, these false teachers could have no hope to escape. Even angels themselves, higher than mankind, holding great rank, God did not spare, but God cast them down to be punished. If he does that to them, he'll do that to the false teachers. Now, let's go to chapter 2 of 2 Peter and look at verse 5. Here's his second example. God knows how to reserve the unjust. And he mentions the ancient world at verse 5. That's the wicked in the, the world, the wicked of the, the world in the days of Noah. So let's talk about the wicked in the days of Noah. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6. What about the wicked people in the days of Noah? Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. We won't read the whole context. But I want you to notice how wicked the world was. Look at verse 5, Genesis 6 and in verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of thought of his heart was on evil continually. Verse 6 says, It grieved God that he had made man. Look at verse 11. The earth was corrupt before the Lord and was filled with violence. So the Lord looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way before the earth. So the world was corrupt, and they were in sin. That's the world he's talking about in this context. They were ungodly. They were irreverent toward God. They paid no attention to the preaching of Noah. They ignored God and his word as it came from Noah. But now the text says God destroyed all but eight souls. God destroyed every one of them, all but eight souls. He destroyed them by a flood. Let's go back to Genesis 7 and in verse 12. The Lord caused the rain to come up on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Same context, look at verse 21. The Lord caused all flesh to die, every moving thing on the earth and birds and cattle and beasts. And notice at verse 23, He destroyed all living things who were on the face, both man and cattle. So God caused all of mankind, as well as all creatures, except those who are in the ark, to die because of the flood. Now, what's the point concerning the wicked in the days of Noah? Why does he mention them and why does he bring them up here? He again reasons from the greater to the lesser. What's his point? His point is that if God didn't even spare the whole world, why will he spare these false teachers and their followers? You see, in the case of the angels, we don't know how many there were. We don't know the number here, but we know that only eight were spared. And his point is the fact that they were in the majority didn't keep them out of the flood. There is no comfort in saying most of the people agree with what I'm doing. Most of the people approve of what I'm doing. Most of the world was lost. So the fact that they were in the majority was of no comfort at all. Now you think about this fact, that only eight souls, let's go back to our text, back to our text, when he's talking about, but he spared Noah, 
one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. We'll come back to him in a moment, but Noah was one of eight people. And that is, you think of the fact that in the whole world, only eight people were righteous. We know, and we'll say more about this perhaps later, we know more than eight righteous people in our own day, in our own time. But let's look at the third example now at verse 6. Verse 6 mentions the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. What was their sin? Their sin involved was something that was a very great sin. Let's go back to Genesis 18 and in verse 20. He's going very far back into the Old Testament, went back to the day of the flood, went back even perhaps before uh, Genesis 2 in verse 4. But notice in... Uh, He's coming a little bit later now in Genesis chapter 18. Look at Genesis 18 now and in verse 20. That the Lord said, Because the outcry, outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous. That is, here is the sin that is so great that's rising up from Sodom and Gomorrah. What was it? Well, it was homosexuality was the main sin that was involved, not the only sin. But look at verse 4. There were men who were crying out after men saying we want that we may know them, verse 5, carnally. So here was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was homosexuality. Thus we have our term sodomy. It was sexual immorality. They went after strange flesh, according to Jude, verse 7. By the way, verse 6 mentions those angels. Verse 7 mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. One of our reasons thinking the angels may be the same. Now, what was the punishment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 19. God turned the cities into ashes. Look at verse 24 and 25. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities in the plain. Now, notice furthermore, in Luke chapter 17, verse 29, again, he mentions God overthrew them with fire and with brimstone. God condemned the world with an overthrow. Both the passage in Genesis 19 and in our text, the King James uses, instead of the word destruction, with an overthrow. Here is the idea of God overthrowing, overturning, Gesenia says. Again, a lexicographer saying the word means an overturning or an overthrow. God overturned the cities. In other words, it's an upheaval. God destroyed the cities. And the, the destruction was utter and it was indeed complete. Now, he mentions in our text, let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 2, that they serve as an example. Making them an example, a model if you please. Like a sculptor has a model that he's going to follow and make others just like that. Or an architect has a model that he's going to follow or a plan. It's the idea of a plan. And he said it makes them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. They serve as an example to those who would live ungodly, the same thing's going to happen to them. Not that you have to commit the same sin. But if you live ungodly, the same thing will happen to you as it happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Same thing will happen to you that happened to someone else, like the angels or like the, uh, the ancient world in Noah's day. Now look at verse 7 of 2 Peter chapter 2, that the text says that they suffer, or Jude verse 7, they suffer eternal fire. Same examples are given here in this context. Look at Jude verse 7, And Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities around them in similar manner, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, gone after strange flesh, has set them forth as an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now what they received wasn't eternal damnation. They may receive that, but that's not what happened in Genesis 19. 
But that serves as an example or a model of what eternal punishment will be. That's his point. They serve as an example. Now what's the point of mentioning them? Same thing that he mentioned in the other two. Reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God didn't even spare entire cities, why will he spare the false teachers and their followers? He's not only talking about false teachers, but anyone who follows after them. The same thing can happen to them. And in fact, our text says at verse 7 that it even involves, or rather verse 6, anyone who decides to live ungodly. If God didn't even spare entire cities, the same thing could happen to anyone else. The fact that there were some righteous people in the midst of those cities didn't spare them from the fire. There were righteous people there, but that didn't spare them. And there's a lesson to be learned. Now, here's what we've seen. And these three examples, here's what these angels, the ancient world, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah did. They sinned, verse 4. They lived ungodly. They were wicked. There was filthy conduct, verse 7. They were involved in lawless deeds, verse 8. They were unjust. Now what happened to them? God didn't spare them. He cast them down to Tartarus. He reserves them to judgment. He brought the world of the flood upon them, turned the cities to ashes, condemned them to destruction, and awake for the punishment of the great day. Now then, what I've learned from that is God knows how to reserve the unjust. When someone is ungodly, God knows how to do that. So when I begin to think, you know what, if I live ungodly, I'm not what I ought to be, and I'm not living, God won't punish me. You know, God knows how to deal with that. God knows how, and he'll deal fairly with the, with the ungodly. And that includes me. And he'll do the same thing. If he didn't spare angels, and he didn't spare even the highest rank of angels, and he didn't spare the whole world, and he didn't even spare whole cities, then he's not going to spare me. But now there's a second thing. God knows how to deliver the godly. Let's go back to our text. And let's see if we can find some comfort in verse 9. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And in this same context, not only does he give examples of the unjust, he gives examples of the godly right in the context. So I know what he's talking about. So what this passage does is offers hope to the righteous who finds themselves in the midst of a corrupt world. Do you ever feel like you're you're, you're just swimming in a sea of ungodliness? Do you ever look around and you think, we we, we live in such an ungodly world. This world is just so terrible. It's getting worse by the day. And how can I ever ever survive in the midst of this world? Are we going to make it through this corrupt world? And what the text is telling me is it offers some hope for the righteous who finds themselves in the midst of the ungodly because that's the two examples that he mentions here in this context. Now let's talk about temptation first. On a cursory reading of verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. If you didn't open up to the context and you just read that verse, just opened that verse and read it, it may sound as if that if I face temptation and an enticement to sin, what the Lord's going to do is deliver me from that. So I don't need to worry about involving myself in temptation. The Lord will deliver me out of that. And and if if I get a little too close to sin, the Lord will deliver me out of that because the Lord knows how to deliver the godly from temptation. As long as I try to live right, I'm on. I don't need to worry about being enticed to sin. Well, the word temptation can mean enticement to sin. It does mean that. It can mean that. But it can also mean a trial and a test. Here it means a test or a trial. You say, how do you know? There are two examples that are given, Noah and Lot. And these men, while they may in times have been tempted and enticed to commit sin, 
The things mentioned in the context were where they were desiring to do what was right, but they're being tried and they're being tested and they're living in the midst of a corrupt world. Lot was right in the middle of the Sodom and Gomorrah and Noah was right in the midst of this corrupt world and they lived godly and the Lord spared them. And there's some encouragement in that. Balkum, as he's quoted by Hamilton said, this refers to a good man's situation in a world in which the powers of good and evil confront each other and he is therefore exposed to attack from evil. Do you ever feel like I'm trying to live godly, I'm trying to live right, and I'm being attacked by evil, and here is, here is an evil attack, and here's pressure that's being put on, and here's another pressure that's put on, and, and it looks like the whole world around me is corrupt. What can I do? How can I survive? That's what this text is about. The point of this text is bearing through the trial, perseverance, persevering, will result in God preserving us. It is not giving us comfort at all that you face temptation to commit sin. God's going to deliver you out of that. God's going to bring you out of that so that you're not committed, tempted to commit sin. And so why didn't he deliver David? Why didn't he deliver Achan? And a host of others. The point is, you persevere and remain faithful and the Lord will spare you. That's the comfort to be gained from this text. Now let's notice the two examples. The first is in verse 5. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly. What do you mean, Peter? What are you talking about? The Lord knows how to deliver the godly. What are you talking about, Peter? I'm talking about Noah. It's what I just mentioned. I just gave you an example, Peter would say. So notice Noah. Let's go back to verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Well, let's establish the fact that Noah lived right. And we have this not only in this text, but in other texts. Let's list some things we know about Noah. Noah was a man of faith. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Faith Hall of Fame, verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not seen, moved with godly fear. So Noah was a man of faith. He had faith. And Noah was a man of fear. He had godly fear. He feared God. He held God with great awe and esteem and was also afraid of displeasing Him. Same verse. He was a man of obedience. He moved with godly fear and prepared an ark to the saving of his household. One of the most interesting phrases in Genesis 6 was when God gave Noah the instruction to build the ark, the text says, so he did. So he did. He did exactly what God told him. He was a man of faith. He was a man of fear. He was a man of obedience. He was a just man. Let's go back to Genesis 6. Back in the story of the flood over in Genesis chapter 6, and notice in verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man. He was a just man. What else do we know about Noah? He was a blameless man. Same verse. He was perfect in his generation. Doesn't mean he was flawless. It means he was blameless. Footnote. Check your footnote. Same verse. He walked with God. You can't walk with God unless you're agreed. Amos 3 and verse 3. So he walked with God. What else did he do? Well, he was, he was a righteous man. Genesis 7 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, 
because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You're living right. Go back to our text in 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2 and verse 5 says he was a preacher of righteousness. He didn't just preach, but he preached righteousness. Noah preached for 120 years. And all he saved was his family. Think about that. All he saved was his family. He was a man who did save his family. He, he was one of eight, verse 5 says. He spared his family. And I want to suggest that if we do that, we're doing quite well. Sometimes we're not even doing that. We can't spare anybody else, but we're not even sparing sometimes our own family. But he was a preacher of righteousness. He was a man who lived right. Now, God delivered him, the text says. I want you to notice at verse 5, there's two phrases that are used. One is by implication, and the other one is specifically mentioned. The second one we'll mention first. Notice at verse 5, but God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah. What does it mean? He saved him from the flood. Put him in the ark and saved him. So he didn't die in the flood. He wasn't destroyed like the rest of the world. Same thing, but I use the word spared because verse 5 uses the word spared in contrast to saved. He did not spare the ancient world, but he saved Noah. Spared and saved is the same thing in this context. But what encouragement do I get from that? Well, if you live godly and you live right like Noah and Noah's family, you'll be spared when destruction comes. And when we get discouraged thinking we live in such a corrupt world, I want to tell you, we have more righteous people in this world today than they did in the days of Noah. And you say, well, it's a much smaller world. Let's just take if the whole world were our county, Bedford County, 48,000 people. Are there not more than eight righteous souls in Bedford County? Let's take that number and cut it in half. 24,000 say that's the whole world. Are there not more than eight righteous souls in that 24,000? Kind of a high percentage compared to the days of Noah. You say, well, that's still too high. Let's take that 24,000, cut it in half, 12,000. Uh, 12, Let's cut that in half. And now we got 6,000. Out of 6,000 people in the whole world, do we not have more than eight righteous souls? In this small county, there are more than eight righteous souls. You think of being in the days of Noah, only eight righteous people, and God spared them. God knows how to deliver the godly. God will deliver us as well. Now, let's notice the second example he gives, and that's Lot. Verse 7, and he delivered righteous Lot. Did Lot make some mistakes? We talk about how he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He certainly did. But here he's called righteous three times in this context. Look at verse 7 and 8. Watch the three times. He delivered righteous Lot. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul. Three times in two verses. He was righteous, he was righteous, he was righteous. He lived right before God. Notice verse 7 now. The text says he was oppressed. Part of his righteousness led him to this, that he was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. The American standard says he was sore distressed. Because he lived right, he was bothered by the sin that was around him. It means to wear down, to tire out. In other words, he was worn out with sin. The Lexham English Bible says he was worn out with it. You get worn out with all that's going on around you in this wicked world. 
I'm not talking about the coronavirus. That's not wicked within itself. I'm not talking about the political season. There's a lot of wickedness there. What I'm talking about, just the sin in, the, in our society that was going on in 2019 and 18 and 17 and 16 and on, all the way back. And will be going on in 21 and 22 and 23 and on down the line. You get just worn out with that. You get just sick of all the corruption around you and you wonder, how can I raise my children in the midst? And I, and I dread my grandchildren being raised in the midst of this wicked world. Lot was oppressed with a filthy con. He was worn out with it, the text said. Notice verse 8. He was tormented by seeing and hearing. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day on a daily basis by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. It's an imperfect action, meaning he kept on being tormented. It wasn't that he was tormented and then he got better. But as long as he was in the middle of that city and as long as the city stood, he was tormented. It went on day after day after day, he was tormented, the text says. In other words, it pained him because of what he saw and what he heard. His good heart was hurt, the new century says. He had a good heart. He was hurt. He was disturbed. He was bothered by all the sin that was around him. And a third phrase was, or implication in the context, though he lived in the midst of a wicked city. He was a righteous man, he was tormented, he was oppressed, even though he lived in the midst of a corrupt city. He was not corrupted by it, he was still a righteous man. He did not become indifferent to it. He had a daily concern. Notice back at verse 8, day to day seeing and hearing those lawless deeds. Clinton Hamilton made this observation in his commentary at this juncture that when one is no longer bothered by wickedness, he has entered an extremely dangerous spiritual condition. Part of the description of Lot being righteous was he was bothered by all the sin around him. When I'm no longer bothered by what's going on and I'm tolerant of it and I'm accepting of it, then I may not be the righteous person anymore. The Lord knows how to deliver them. But notice he was spared or he was delivered. Verse 7, he delivered righteous Lot. In other words, he survived. He didn't, he didn't face that destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And from those two examples, I know the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And he knows how to, to, to reserve the unjust. Now, what have I learned? Let's list two or three things here, and the lesson will be yours. I learned that false teachers will be lost. That's the point of the context. I learned that those who follow false teaching will be lost. So you say, well, I'm not a false teacher. I don't even know any false teachers. But if I'm misled and I follow after that, that's the point of 2 Peter 2. I'm going to be in the same condition of the false teachers. And just like the ancient world, just like the angels that sinned, and just like Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, verse 6 says, any who live ungodly. That could be a faithful, godly Christian who becomes ungodly. That could be me. That could be you. But I learned from this text, it's possible to live right in a sea of a wicked world. And you may look around and think, I'm, I'm drowning in the midst of a sea of ungodliness. What do I do? Be like Noah, be like Lot. And I learned this from this context, the Lord distinguishes between the righteous and the wicked, and he knows how to make that distinction. See, I might not be able to see that distinction clearly. I think he's righteous, but he's ungodly. I think he's ungodly, but maybe he really is righteous. I may have a hard time distinguishing but God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. May that encourage us as we live in a sea of wickedness and a world of ungodliness all around us. May God help us to live that godly life he would have us to live. There may